Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. It's Jacqueline Friedman. I am your host. We are going to get down in the unscrewing dirt on this episode. Uh, A couple of months ago, I got an email from a publicist saying, hey, do you want to interview the authors of this new book I have coming out? It's called Why Does Patriarchy Persist? And I was like, well, that's relevant to my interest. And then I saw that it was written by Carol Gilligan, the absolute icon of feminist psychology, the the mother of feminist psychology, and another amazing researcher at NYU, Naomi Snyder. And I said, well, yes, please. But then a bunch of scheduling things happen, and I'm only now getting to talk to them. So Naomi and Carol, thank you so much for coming on Unscrewed. It's an honor to have you. Oh, Jacqueline, thank you. Thank you. It's great to connect with you again. Yeah. And so, uh, as you know, I know you're not excited about the lightning round, but we'll get through it as quickly as possible. (laughs) Um, These are the questions I ask everyone when they come on my show. And the first one is very simple, which is what has been making you happy this week? I wrote a scene in in the novel I'm working on that I didn't think I knew how to write. (gasps) That's exciting. (laughs) What's the novel about? Oh, that will really take us on a tangent. Okay. All right. All right. (laughs) Naomi, how about you? I've been getting excited about the fact that on Sunday, I'm running my first ever marathon. (gasps) Whoa. And I'm a mix of like in dread, in denial, but also getting increasingly excited because what I'm hearing more and more from people is that actually it's a really incredibly fun experience. That's awesome. Are you running New York? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, good luck with that. By the time this airs next week, you'll have already run it. So wow, yeah. We're cheering you on from the future. <laughs> and I'll be like, how naive I was to be excited. <laughs> okay, next question. What's some of the best sex advice you ever received? Pay attention to what you want. <laughs> yes, that's great sex <laughs> advice. The best advice hasn't been advice so much as just As I've grown older, um, having more honest conversations with friends. It's not so much the the advice, just the the kind of increasingly opening up about insecurities and questions and just being a bit more honest about it all. Just the modeling that you get from your friends who are willing to be open Mm -hmm. with you. That's wonderful. All right. This question I've been asking since before the Trump administration and has become sort of more laughable as we go. But (laughs) what's been making you the angriest or saddest about the sexual culture recently? Oh, just the extent of sexual abuse, of violence toward women, 
that this goes on and on. Hmm. Yep. <laughs> there it is. And I think on top of that is the sense that even though there's like such increasing awareness and there feels like a real shift, I still find a sense from some people of minimizing and doubting. And some of those conversations feel complicated and painful. Oh, yeah. I know that. And so it's not only that it's so bad and pervasive, but that people and often people that we know and love are still so insistent on denying the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. We're we're more than halfway through. Um, (laughs) What is a sex myth, a a wrong thing about sex that you used to believe but don't believe anymore? That it it stops when you get older. (laughs) Ah, Excellent. Good news from the future. For a long time, I believe there was something kind of shameful about sex. And even if that wasn't a conscious thought, I think that imbued Mm. a lot of my relationship to sex. So I think it's a slowly kind of shedding of the shame that I kind of unconsciously had associated with it, I think. Yeah. All right. Last question. Who's someone who you think is doing really great, brave work to unscrew the sexual culture? Who do you want to give a shout out to who's doing great work? Uh, Esther Perel. Yes. And I would also say Terry Real. Oh, that's not a name I know. Oh, you should know. Say more. He wrote a book about men. His book was called I Just Don't Want to Talk About It, which was about men and depression. He's really, really insightful. But about sex specifically, I would say Esther. Mm -hmm. Naomi? Tarana Burke. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've kept it on the like sexual abuse kind of side of things, but I read an interview with her, her speaking about what her vision of the Me Too movement always was, I found really hopeful because part of my disappointment actually is is how polarizing and black and white the narrative can become on both sides. And that often doesn't fit with my own experience and the experience of many people I know who's trying to find their own narrative. And in this interview, she was talking about how the Me Too movement always began as a movement to enable survivors to narrate their own experience in their own words and to heal and that that's really the vision of it that she still has and she feels like in some ways it may have lost the way of it but holding true to that vision and her hope that we can get to a point of not just putting people into categories and labeling experiences in certain ways but allowing people to own and talk about their own experiences and share them. I love that I'm gonna have to go check out that article I didn't see it it ties in so beautifully to what you two are, are working on and writing about. And that means you have survived the lightning round. <laughs> We're not sure about to talk about your actual work. I hope it was okay. Yeah, no, it was actually good. We liked your questions. Thank you. I like them. They're good questions. So, Carolyn Naomi, why does patriarchy persist? <laughs> You know, when it's so naked, like, and and we've, we've been making all these gains and the movement has tried so many things and how are we still banging our head against this? I thought your answer was so lovely, actually, it was surprisingly lovely. So take me back to sort of the genesis of how this project started. Well, the way it started was that Naomi had come from London to NYU as a student at the law school to get a master's degree in law. And she took a seminar that I teach with my colleague, David Richards, called Resisting Injustice. 
And on the week that we read my book, The Birth of Pleasure, Naomi turned in a paper that absolutely blew my mind because she was saying basically, I mean, in The Birth of Pleasure, I talk about the tension between patriarchy and democracy and how the tension between any sort of hierarchical structure and love and so forth. And then I also write a lot about the research I did with girls and girls who, when they reach womanhood in adolescence, start to say things like, if I were to say what I was really feeling and thinking, no one would want to be with me. So girls start not to say what they see and not to know what they know. Naomi wrote this paper about the death of her father and said that I really should let her talk and tell this. This is your story. I was, I was enjoying hearing you um, <laughs> say that. And actually, it feels like a good way to begin because it really was a process of where it began and where it took us this to. This is where so it this started, is, yeah. This is a great way into it. So I, I, I read The Birth of Pleasure, Pleasure and really it was my first meeting of the word patriarchy. Oh. I hadn't really... Um, thought about things in those ways and seen them in that way and so in the book um carol writes about this tension that exists between this kind of innate human desire to be loved and to love and i mean i have to say just to interrupt your story like birth of pleasure changed Mm -hmm. the way i interact with the world is really formative book for me oh in terms of thinking about the stories we tell and the very structure Mm. of what we think a story is and how if we restructured the way we think about stories, we could restructure everything. I, I mean, yeah, it was, it's an incredible work. And if anyone hasn't read it, they should go out immediately and remedy that. Yeah, thank yeah. you. And I, I should say that Birth of Pleasure is the first time I used the word patriarchy in my work. Mm-hmm. And it was in answer to a question in my the work I had done with girls as girls were coming up to being adolescents, to being young women, I saw them resisting something. And I had to ask myself, what is it that girls are resisting? And they were resisting forces that, that said to them, you have to choose between either you can have a voice or you can have relationships. I mean, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's absurd because if, if you don't have a voice, if you can't say your experience, you're not present in relationships. Anyway, What I realized is they were resisting something that was real, that was outside in the world and pressing on them. And it had a name and it was called patriarchy. Mm -hmm. That's how patriarchy came into my work, Mm -hmm. was an answer to that question. And that's a really good entry point. If there's a point of resistance, there's sort of the healthy psyche, as Carol puts it, that will resist, almost like the Faustian kind of bargain. You, know, you can have relationships or you can have all of the benefits of patriarchy. You know, you can be the good woman who kind of, yeah, that you get marriage and you get blessings. There are great rewards that come with kind of compliance, but it comes at such a cost. It comes at the cost of silencing yourself and of losing authentic connections. Yeah. So, so then, yeah. So yeah. I, I interrupted your story and I want to get back to it. Yeah. I was like, yes. You know, I, I agree. I, I feel that desire to love and be loved. Like I, I, I know it to be true. And and yet I see that there are forces that come against it. And and my question was, so why? Like, why if I um, have this desire to love and to be loved and to be really seen and connected to the world, do I constantly go for the, the good woman? Mm. I mean, I was, I was there. I mean, you have to realize Naomi was a human rights lawyer, just so you have the, 
I get it. I mean, honestly, honestly, the frame about like choosing a voice or relationship is so resonant for me too. I, my whole life has had this feeling like I can choose my career as a feminist advocate or I can have a sustainable long-term relationship. And even though I've actually been in one for seven years, I still feel that, that sort of haunting that like it's going to come to an impasse sooner or later. Yeah. Well, and then I think that comes to like what you're saying in the stories we tell ourselves, yeah. because I think that's what um, Carol sort of says in The Birth of Pleasure, which is that we've been telling ourselves a tragic love story, which yes. is the patriarchy is inevitable, that there's no such thing as the possibility of a kind of a lasting, authentic connection. You kind of have to make these compromises. They're part of kind of mature relationships. And I believed that. And similarly now, I've, I've, my personal life has shifted as I've shifted and I've started to see if we tell ourselves a different story, it becomes possible. Yes. It's, it, there is a real power to that. But constantly we're met by a culture that's insisting on this tragic story. And there are many forces that make that a reality as well. It's not all imagined. So, yes, the paper was sort of a question of if there's this tension, why does it persist? And reading Carol's work, it has this very associative kind of poetic kind of way of Mm. writing. And I kind of embodied that. And what came out was what I knew about the compromises that I'd made in the, the wake of the death of my father. And I knew on some level that the reason why we sacrifice the possibility of authentic connection is to avoid the possibility of loss. Like Mm. you can't lose what you don't have in a way. So when Naomi turned in this paper saying, maybe patriarchy persists not only because people with power don't want to give it up, which we know, but also because it's serving a psychological function. It's a protection against loss. And I thought, wow, that was, it was just amazing to me. She'd taken the argument of my book a step further. So I said to Naomi, do you want to work together on this and pursue this notion that maybe what's driving patriarchy, because patriarchy, by setting up a hierarchy, you know, interferes with the possibility of intimacy. Because if you don't have equal voice in a relationship, you can't deal with conflicts in the relationship. Mm. And if you can't deal with conflicts, then basically... The relationship comes to a a screeching halt because their conflicts are inevitable. So anyway, I said to Naomi, let's work together on this. So we started to work together and I was invited to give a talk at the White Institute in New York, which is a psychoanalytic institute. And I said to Naomi, let's give it together. (laughs) So we started to write this talk together. And because part of it was Naomi's story about her experience of loss of her father, We couldn't write that in one voice because that's Naomi's story. So even in our talk, we gave the talk in two voices, Naomi and Carol. And we started this dialogue. I said to Naomi, let's read the the literature about loss. You know, read the work of John Bowlby, who observed children's responses to loss. Like he did this whole study of when children go to hospital and in the days when parents couldn't go. And he observe this pattern that the first response to loss is protest. If you lose a relationship, I think we all know this, the first is to protest it and try to repair the relationship, to make it hold again. And that if that fails, then there's a sense of hopelessness or despair, which is then followed by detachment, Mm. which he talks about as, and this is so 
resonant with our culture of investing in objects rather than people because yeah. at least, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, exactly. So as Naomi was reading Bowlby's work, we suddenly thought, wait a minute, that's the pattern that I'd observed in girls of this protest. And when the protest was ineffective, followed by a sense of despair, which often takes the form of depression, and then a sense of detachment, I mean, of just sort of giving up on relationships. And so that's that's what led us into this book. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about how patriarchy severs the possibility of relationship for both men and women. And I think mm. you, you talk about that so affectingly. It is revealing about the different ways it does. And it, it reveals how women are still able to have strong friendships with other women in ways that men are often are not with other men. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and I love how I you, mean, we, yeah. we start with a story yeah. of a law student named Adam. That story is so... Is that an amazing, whose best friend was Ali? And then when he was in 10th grade, some girls told Adam what he suspected, which is that Ali was gay. And Adam to sort of maintain his own image of his own masculinity as a jock and so forth, he broke off his relationship with Ollie. And then he realized that a sort of intangible force was driving him mm-hmm. to do what he really didn't want to do, which was to break what he called a true bond. And then we, we have the story of Jackie, who, when she was a senior in college, was raped by a classmate. And then she was told, basically afterwards, do you want to ruin his life and so forth and so on? So she didn't speak up about what she knew to be true, because even in that case, the guy admitted he had, in fact, raped her. So the question is that we saw both men and women being driven to do things that they really didn't want to do. I mean, how would you put it? Yeah, I think that's a really like I, I think those two stories really kind of illustrate something. And, and even though the point that you made, Jacqueline, that women are kind of we're allowed to have more intimate connections because we're supposed to be relational. Right. But I think the point that we make is patriarchy still very much interferes with women's capacity for intimate relationships because there's a pressure for us to become selfless within those relationships. Right. We're not supposed to be whole individuals. Yeah. Exactly. And like, especially when it comes to issues of conflict and asserting our own needs and desires in those relationships, there are ways ideals of femininity also beneath the surface really do disrupt some of those more authentic or like deeper kind of connections. Yeah. And you know what, one of the things that was just sort of mind blowing to us is as we were reading this work about loss and the psychology of loss, we realized that what Bowlby and, and the psychologists who study this define as pathological responses to loss, meaning ways of responding to loss that make it almost impossible to find relationships again, are what we hold up as the ideals of masculinity mm, and femininity. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. Wait, say you more know, so that people hear about that, because I thought that was so that was definitely well, a, a light bulb moment for me. Yeah, well, you know, the idea that for men to be a real man is to be able to stand on your own two feet and not need to depend on anybody and to, you know, be able to be independent and to be emotionally stoic. Well, that's a pathological response Mm -hmm. to loss because it means that you basically have walled yourself off from relationships. 
it interferes with your ability to make relationships again. So what Bobby calls compulsive detachment for women. He calls it compulsive caretaking. So for men, it's compulsive detachment for women. It's compulsive caretaking. And those are both the pathological women. responses, yeah. to, responses loss. to loss. Yeah. So they yes. might be adaptive in some environments, but they become pathological. 
on Tinder Live with Lane Moore, which I'm flipping out about a little. It's going to be like me and a bunch of professional comedians trying to be funny without being mean about the realities of dating on Tinder. I don't know if you've never seen Lane Moore do Tinder Live. It's amazing. She literally does go on Tinder Live and interacts with guys there. And she really manages to do it in a way that makes fun of Tinder, but is not mean-spirited. It's really amazing. And I'm super nervous. And I would love to see some of your friendly faces there. So again, if you're in the New York area, that's December 1st at Littlefield in Brooklyn. I'm pretty sure tickets are on sale now. Uh, If not, they'll be on sale any second now. So yeah, come see me. That is all I got for now. Go vote Unscrewed Nation. And here's the rest of the show. So can we talk for a minute? Because we all know ultimately what patriarchy looks like, right? In our guts, at least. What's a healthy relationship to loss? Oh, to protest the loss. One of the things that really, really moved me so deeply when I read Bobby's work is not to detach from the loss, but to recognize the loss, to stay in relationship with the person I mean, Naomi tells an amazing story in this book about how even after death, you can stay in Mm. relationship with someone. She tells the story about her father. It's difficult to explain, but there was a sense in writing the book that it became the very thing we were talking about, because in some ways, actually, this whole book is a protest. Right. And in some ways, my whole experience with Carol has been about creating a different response to loss, because... Carol heard my protest and she said there was resonance there for her and she she responded to it. That kind of created for me the possibility of, oh, you can say what you really think and someone will listen and, and something kind of some new way of connecting to Carol, to the world, to myself emerges. So we were writing the book over the summer. So summer of 2017 and I had gone back to London for a period and my sister was getting married it was a few days before the wedding and there was something about the wedding that you know I was was very happy about but I felt emotional and one of the things that I realized I was emotional about was actually the absence of our father and you know Mm. a few days before we were looking for a gift for my, you know, there's something married, something. Something old, something old, new, something borrowed, something blue, borrowed blue, yeah. Blue. yeah. And my mother was looking for an old necklace of her mother's or something that, that she put away and she couldn't find. So we're searching for this. And I look through a drawer of my mother's and I find this old scrappy notebook and I, um, I start reading through it and I realize that basically what it is, is it's a diary that my father kept. And it is the diary that he um, started writing between the days of sort of diagnosis and death, which weren't very long. He had cancer and died quite quickly. And and essentially, it was his protest against loss and talking about his sadness of not seeing me and my sister grow up. And there's one bit that he sort of talks about, like little tastes of health. And, and one of those was seeing me do something silly. And it really did make me realize that even though there's a very clear absence, there was in that moment such a sense of connection to his loss and my loss Mm. and to the power of of writing to connect those things. It just made me actually feel like that very, very emotionally present to someone who had died 25 years before. 
in a way that I wouldn't have been if I hadn't have also been writing this book at the same time. For positing, which I love, and, and, and I just want to say, like, your book also made me understand myself in a different way, because my response to Trump's election and, and everything, all of the dumpster fire that has followed from that, has been just on an instinctive level to invest more in community and relationships. Mm. Like mm. it's just been the thing that has made me feel most sane and has kept me going and has been healing for me. And, you know, it's the thing I've needed. It's been my impulse. And mm. this made me understand that in a psychological way and also a sociopolitical mm. way. So my instinct that investing in connection is a form of resistance really is grounded <laughs> you you told me what it was oh, all about yeah. yeah right i mean we write about what we call the anger of hope mm-hmm. i and love that's, that because i and i talk I, about I, the hope of anger a lot which is like that <laughs> that people are afraid especially women are afraid of anger and i find that one of the requirements for anger is hope that you have to believe mm-hmm. something can be different and be outraged mm-hmm. that it's not exactly yeah mm-hmm. um yeah the alternative is despair right exactly oh i wanted to ask about the the sort of its opposite number though because i know a lot of people you know we were talking in the lightning round about how hard it is to deal with people that maybe we love or just encounter who want to minimize the reality of sexual violence or you know those sorts of things a a lot of people have had a have felt the need to cut a lot of people out of their lives Mm. in this political moment as an act of resistance and possibly self-protection. And I'm wondering how this sort of framework of resistance to patriarchy being about both building voice and building relationship simultaneously and stopping those things being in opposition how you think about those processes that people are going through in terms of cutting out people who are too painful to interact with? I always think people do things usually for a reason. And if somebody's cutting somebody out because they're finding it too painful, I mean, I think that's really important to listen to and to acknowledge the pain that they're experiencing. And I, the question I would raise is, is there an alternative? I mean, is there an alternative with this person And one thing that the work that that we've done together, I mean, in this book certainly asks you is if you see somebody who is, for example, emotionally detached or this kind of selfless good woman, someone who's seemingly present but really not present, the question is what has happened to this person? What you could see is, is a response to loss that has taken them away from the possibility of connection. So I think it opens up a different set of questions, including with some of the people who the Me Too movement has exposed and so forth, is basically what happened to these people mm. that they're behaving in this totally out-of-touch way. We talk about this in the beginning of our book. There's this wonderful two-minute YouTube video called The still Faced Experiment, and it shows that we all, I mean, literally all of us as humans, start out tremendously attuned to the relational world around us. I mean, we know when someone is in touch with us and someone is not. So the question is, when someone is out of relationship, which really they are, if, they, if they're if they acting abusively or something, something has happened to that person. So I think it, it sort of encourages a kind of attitude of, you know, really interest in what happened and is there a possibility to find a way back for mm. that person? Yeah, 
Although I, mean, I think that sometimes, depending on what relationship, if you've been on the receiving end of the abuse, it, it's it's not necessarily going to be you who can become curious exactly. about that. Yeah, but I think, but I think that's right. But somebody else, I mean, but as a society, I yes, think we have to become curious. What's really distressing is how prevalent this is, mm. and when you read about some of it, like the the thing about the Catholic Church and this abuse of very oh. small children, I mean. You think, how could this happen? And so collectively, as a society, you wouldn't ask the person who's been abused to do this. But as a society, collectively, we have to say, how come this is happening in our midst? I mean, what's allowing this to happen? And how can we make something different happen? Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise, what we, I mean, what we tried to take in our book by asking the question, and it really was a question, why does patriarchy persist? Because there's something that's inexplicable seemingly about it. So what is driving this? I mean, and I think that's part of certainly my response to what's coming out now is what is driving people to these acts of violence or these acts of abuse? And mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree with you. I certainly don't think that the person who has been the recipient of those kinds of acts is the one who mm-hmm. who you would ask to do this. So what then are the remedies? Like on a real world, you, me, the people listening, like I, I really love this framework and I understand it on certain levels. And then there's parts of me, especially when we get to this part of the conversation where we're like, we need to get very curious about these terrifyingly abusive men makes me feel like, are we going to turn them into the victims, which is what they want anyway? And I feel very, I feel very angry. <laughs> and I know that you talk about anger in the book in really productive ways. And in fact, maybe what I want is to talk about Jackie at the end of the book. Is it okay to talk about stuff that it's in the conclusion? Or do you think that's sure. spoiler? Because oh, no. no. I think that <clears throat> that framework was so helpful for me to understand what this looks like in practice, which is not just that we have to just love each other regardless. Mm-hmm. No, I, as a leading, can I talk about Adam for a minute? Because yeah. once Adam realized that he was being driven by, as he says, a framework that was older than the Oresteia, I mean, that older than, than ancient Greece, a framework of manhood and patriarchy had been driving him to, to break what was a true bond and to do the thing which Adam was in his 20s he said was the thing he most regrets in his life so far. Part of his hidden you know, self that he had dissociated himself from was he, he loved singing and he was a musician. So he composed a song for Ollie. That's the friend that he had broken off with. I mean, one of the most poignant lines in the story of Adam is as a teenager, he says to his grandfather, I used to have a best friend, but I don't anymore. Oh, I know. He had broken this relationship with Ollie. He felt terrible about it. He understood that he'd been driven by these. Well, he says the culprit was a ghost. You couldn't see it, but it was having this effect on him. So what does he do? He composes a song to Ollie and he records it where he expresses how badly he felt about what he had done. Now, I think that's really extraordinary. I mean... I thought it was too, although I wanted to know if he sent it or played it for Ollie and how Ollie responded. I don't know if that's relevant here, if you can tell me, but I'm so curious about what happened with that. You know, I think it is really relevant and I don't think we have an answer to that question, but I think it matters. I think we need to email Adam. Yeah, I think we need to know. Because that was because the thing I that, that, like, matters, I read that right? and I was like, oh God, did it work? Like, I'm like, 
I'm so rooting for it to like, even if it doesn't, you know, get back all the years they were apart or, you know, restore the relationship to exactly what it was. Like if there was some healing or reconciliation there, I would just, I would so want there to be. We don't know, but I guess the question of whether for Ollie it would have felt healing. And I think, I think this is a question that we're really struggling with as a culture right now is like what heals after um, something like this. What I think struck me about the song that Adam wrote was the real recognition of the betrayal, the real kind of owning of what it was that he had done to Ollie, to really... To Ollie and to himself. And to himself. And to himself. (laughs) Yes. And to say that. I think men recognizing that the wound is not just like you've harmed others, but that you've harmed yourself. Mm-hmm. That's what to me was the most powerful thing that he had realized that he had acted against what he loved, what he wanted. What do you think it helped him recognize that? Taking the class that gave him a framework. And also mm-hmm. I think the election of Trump, which suddenly brought home to him that this is really going on and this going on in our midst and that, we have to take it seriously. I mean, and I think that I think that's true. I think both those things were important because I think what the resisting injustice class is, it provides a political framework, but it also provides an environment where it feels safe to admit mm. the parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of. So you wanted to talk about, we wanted to talk about Jackie. Yeah. I don't have a question so much as I thought that the entire concluding part of Jackie's story was so illuminating for me about mm what this looks like in practice. I'm just very sensitive of the gendered nature for women of being like, the answer is we should be more loving, right? Like, Well, because um, then it becomes a repeat, right? Exactly. And And so you can't forgive without reparation. This was really powerful for us in terms of writing the book. And in the course of writing the book and the conversations between the two of us, we really came to understand things that we didn't know before we started. So that email, when Jackie writes to Tom, the classmate who raped her, and he writes back and she says, remember she She says, whole, that, he, he basically says to her, yes, I definitely am aware I raped you. I'm sorry. And she says that she thought that she would feel better having that apology, but it actually made her much angrier mm-hmm. because he knew all the time that he had harmed her in this way and he didn't spontaneously apologize. And he had also, she'd also heard from other women that he was still hurting other women. And she realized that there can be no repair without him realizing that there's something inside him that needs to be repaired, right? That the apology is not the thing. Well, that's just it. I mean, I think when she says my rage only grew, Part of me before the letter had wanted to believe that he didn't fully understand what he had done to me, but his response made clear to me that this was not the case. After his email, she writes, I couldn't stop thinking. If he truly felt the way he said he did in the letter, then why hadn't he apologized sooner? Why didn't he go get help? In looking at this passage and really thinking about it, she's asking a different question. Because if, in fact, he did fully understand what he had done to her, then the question becomes not simply, will he apologize or does he feel guilty? But how could he have done it? How could he have raped her? If he was, in fact, able to understand her feelings, then what had happened to him? So her silence was broken in part 
<clears throat> we write, we suspect, because she'd come to a more systemic understanding of what had happened to her. It was not simply that Tom was a monster. Tom had done something monstrous because something, and again, that was the word that kept recurring, had separated him, Tom, from his humanity. And I think she's also saying sort of unless that's fixed, mm. any apology is kind of meaningless. And this like made you, it made me think so much about Louis C.K. and all the men who are mm. trying to have comebacks from their mm -hmm. Me Too moments without doing anything that signifies mm -hmm. that they have actually done that part of the work. Right. That they have maybe most of them have offered the most tepid of apologies, even if they can be considered apologies. But mm. they ha there's no indication from any of them that they've done their own internal repair mm -hmm. on what it was that made them capable of, of doing those abusive things in the first place. And I think that's the thing that's missing from that conversation. You know, there's this dynamic right now where, you know, women are speaking up more and more. And you talk about this doing our part of undoing patriarchy which is discovering and re-embracing our own voices but the part that's not getting done nearly as much is the part where men repair their ability to feel and be relational mm -hmm. and th then that causes a ton of pain right because women speak up and and we you get know i hadn't yeah. I, I hadn't seen it jacqueline until this conversation but that passage from Jackie speaks to exactly the issue in the Me Too movement yes! now. It, it explained mean, the whole thing to me. It says why just saying I'm sorry and I feel guilty doesn't do it. The, the apology is kind of a bit of a, a misnomer in a way because like sorries can be so often a way of diffusing a situation, right? Like don't be angry with me anymore. Like I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry without really having to do the internal work of really having to listen to someone describe how it was that you hurt them and having to sit with that feeling of guilt. Masculinity works because in some ways it, there's this internal division that kind of, this defensive kind of stance that kind of you disconnect from some of your feelings including feelings that if you were in touch with would make you feel kind of you'd be very aware of what you've done to that person you'd be horrified that you had done it and you would really 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 want to know what you could do to make sure you never did it again like yeah. that would just happen it, it's almost like the question of like what should we do about it is a kind of secondary question that ha it, it will happen once we kind of get to the root of wait why are the if these disconnections don't occur people as humans know what to do to resolve things when they've done wrong like we know how and women know how to protest abuse like that that is known that is human and the thing that we really have to tackle is those defenses that stop that from happening right and so do you have any thoughts about like how to help i talk a lot on this show about how to help women find their voices the part of the puzzle that still seems super puzzly to me is how to help men repair their relational humanity. I mean, I think that what this, what we do in this book, which I think is a first step, at least I hope so, is to name the problem very clearly. Yes. And what this particular example of Jackie with Tom is what she realizes, you know, if she had accepted his apology, she would be in what she knew to be a false relationship with him because she knew the behavior was continuing. 
But the deeper insight is she didn't accept it because she realized he was in a false relationship with himself. Yes. And that and I think when you realize that, you know, the people who do this, who who abuse, they're in a false relationship or they are out of relationship with a whole part of themselves. And I think that's so, true. You talk about this in the book also, and I may be being too facile about, oh, we know how to help women find their voices. I mean, mm. we I will never stop well, talking yeah, about the white yeah, women who vote for Trump. Like, mm-hmm. Well, and also what happened to Blasey Ford. She yes. has her voice. And her voice, that was extraordinary, her oh. testimony. But the fact is, Kavanaugh got confirmed. Yeah. But even right it, now, like, I feel like in this conversation, I have this voice. I go into other conversations about this book and where people tell me why patriarchy persists and they give me the answer. It's so easy to lose what you can have in certain contexts, right? Like when you come up against the external barriers. Let's not make this just about men. Does every individual have to come to this individually? <laughs> like how do how do we help people understand the ways we are all in false relationship with ourselves and heal those things? One thing that we say very clearly in the book is that this is not just a psychological issue. It's it's psychology and culture in interaction. This is the other point that we make in the book. The reason why patriarchy persists is because it subverts the capacity to repair by shaming protest. So I think we really need to look at all the ways that the external forces that come in to shame both men and women in various ways. I think that's sort of like that it has to be a dual process. It can't just be about finding our voices individually because it comes up against a culture. For me, the most startling thing in writing this book was to realize that the mechanism that is responsible for patriarchy persisting is very precise, the psychological mechanism. Because any relationship or our ability to function, whether it's in the public, in in political life, or in, in our intimate life with lovers and so forth, in any relationship, we move in and out of touch, including with ourselves and with other people. And so relationships depend on the capacity to repair the inevitable ruptures or lost times when we lose connection. We educate children, we raise children, we we counsel couples. These are things that you can address. I mean, mm. not, and just you can look at what are the systemic forces that are keeping this going and shift them. <sighs> well, I could talk to you about this for a lot longer, but unfortunately, <laughs> we're out of time. So I just want to thank you for this really beautiful work. And I also want to tell people that not only can you go by why does patriarchy persist right now, but it's actually quite short. So if people are worried, Mm -hmm. it's going to be sort of an overwhelming tome. Uh, It's really readable and it's like a little cookie. Like it'll just make you feel better and feel less crazy and feel like you have a sense of, I don't know, it put me in, in better relationship with my own self. I'll say that. So (laughs) I'm incredibly grateful to the two of you for this work. Um, How can people follow your work in general? Are you on social media? Do you have a web presence? What do you have coming up? Are there events or projects you want to talk about? Yeah, so we, um, in terms of events, for anyone that's in the New York area, we have an event at the NYU Bookstore on November 15th at 6 p.m., you can go on the NYU Bookstore website to find more details. And um, in terms of social media presence, both Carol and myself are on Twitter. And we're very like eager to engage with people that way. Our project at NYU is called Radical Listening. And there's a website. Yeah, so if, um, if you just search <laughs> NYU Radical Listening and 
Carol Gilligan, I'm sure that will pop up and that kind of keeps abreast of projects that we have that are ongoing. Fantastic. Um, and folks can follow me on Twitter at Jacqueline F, J-A-C-L-Y-N-F. On Instagram, I'm Jacqueline Fable. You can find this podcast wherever fine podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Acast, wherever you like. While you're in there, subscribe. Make sure you don't miss any amazing episodes and give us five stars. Give us a really brief review. That's how you help other folks find the show. Unscrewed is produced by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman, and edited by the fantastic Natalia Rodriguez. Our in-out music is by the Pink Tiles, and our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna, and was developed in collaboration with the establishment, who also developed the sound cues. Until next week, I'm wishing you all safe and happy sex lives. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.